I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello. Coming up, what will be the impact of General Motors' plans to halt production at five factories in North America? I think it just wants to move resources away from the old world of motoring and into the new world of motoring. What is the outlook for Nissan and Mitsubishi Motors after the departure of Carlos Ghosn? It's a huge downfall for a man who's basically saved one of Japan's flagship companies. And just how difficult is it to open a pub in Ireland? So for a country whose chief cultural export is pubs, you'd think they would be pretty good at this whole opening a pub business. In fact, it's significantly harder than England and Wales. I'm Philip Coggan, and you're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. This week, we start in America. As the news has broken that General Motors plans to halt production at five factories and cut more than 14,000 jobs, while also announcing it will close three plants outside the US at the end of 2019. The moves follow rising costs and slower car sales. To discuss this, I'm joined by Simon Wright, The Economist's motoring correspondent. Hello, Simon. So why is GM doing this? You alluded to it in your introduction. The first thing to say is that the American car market and the Chinese car market have been incredibly buoyant recently. The Chinese car market is slowing down. America is at a peak and is due to slow down shortly. So I think GM is just sort of right-sizing for the size of car market it's going to have in the first instance. Also, there's been a move away from saloon cars. Everyone wants to buy an SUV these days. GM has to realign its sort of industrial footprint to knock out more SUVs and trucks that the people want, which incidentally are far more profitable vehicles. There's some short-term issues why they might be changing. What about the longer-term outlook for GM? The longer-term outlook for the car industry as a whole is it's having to change the way it operates, from selling cars and forgetting about them to providing mobility services, electric vehicles, which are entirely different architecture to the sort of current sort of cars it's making, and also uh, further down the line, autonomous cars. It's interesting to note that two of the factories that are closing down produce internal combustion engines. GM has been at the forefront of making electric vehicles, and I think it just wants to move resources away from the the old world of motoring and into the new world of motoring, and it should be praised for doing that. It's worth noting that GM pulled out of Europe when it sold Opel to uh, the PSA Group. It was an area that wasn't really very profitable. It's allocating capital to where it thinks the profits will be in the future. And... This is obviously a very controversial move. GM has plants in the heartland of America, plants in Ohio, which is a key presidential state. So can we expect quite a backlash against the company from the unions and, of course, from President Trump? I think it's going to be a difficult sell for GM, but these factories have sort of been underutilized for a long while. So it's going to be very hard for them to, to, to keep moving. Donald Trump has been in touch with Mary Barra, GM's boss, to voice his extreme displeasure with the, uh, with the move by GM. I, I don't imagine he's going to take this quietly, nor will the union. Well, we don't like it. Uh, I believe they'll be opening up something else. And uh, we were, I was very tough. I spoke with her when I heard they were closing. And I said, you know, this country's done a lot for General Motors. You better get back in there soon. That's Ohio. And you better get back in there soon. So 
We have a lot of pressure on them. You have senators, you have a lot of other people, a lot of pressure. But what can they do if a company wants to close down a plant? It's striking. It doesn't sound like the answer to make them keep it going. I think there's very little they can do. Is this a sign of other car manufacturers? We'll be discussing Nissan and Renault later, but is there probably going to be a squeeze across the industry in the coming years? Inevitably, when you talk about GM, you have to talk about their crosstown rivals in Detroit, Ford. Ford have been promising a big announcement about a restructuring, and they've been promising it for a while, and they haven't really said anything yet. This will put even more pressure on them. Ford have been perceived to be losing the race to GM, and this will only intensify that feeling. Well, this is always a controversial industry. It was rescued, after all, back in 2009, and job losses are going to be on the news in America for weeks to come, probably. Simon, thank you very much. So staying with the theme of cars, Carlos Ghosn has been sacked as chairman of Mitsubishi Motors after his arrest in Japan over misconduct claims. This follows a similar move by Nissan last week amid allegations that he underreported his salary. To discuss all this, I'm joined on the phone by Sarah Burke, The Economist's Tokyo bureau chief. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Philip. So at the moment, Carlos Ghosn is pretty much out of the Japanese corporate sector They've got rid of all their links with him. That's right. They have to have shareholder meetings later and probably next year. But yes, he's now been got rid of from both Mitsubishi and Nissan, which obviously stands in contrast to Renault, which has not moved to get rid of him yet. And this is a huge shift, isn't it? I mean, Carlos Ghosn was generally seen as the man who saved Nissan. Absolutely. When he took over Nissan, it was facing bankruptcy. It was a total mess. And he's credited with really turning it around and making it, along with the alliance with Mitsubishi and Renault, the leading car maker. So yes, it's a huge downfall for a man who's basically saved one of Japan's flagship companies. And what do you think lies behind this? Because the allegations about his salary and the properties he owned, a lot of executives might say that, you know, this thing goes on quite a lot. And Carlos Ghosn would be unlucky to be the person to be picked out about it. Is is that really the main factor, do you think? I mean, it's very hard to know exactly what's going on until we hear from Ghosn himself and see more of the evidence in the public sphere. But it seems like the real motivation behind this was uh, allegedly Ghosn was planning a merger of Nissan and Renault. And Nissan, which is already unhappy that Renault has a bigger stake in it than it has in Renault, was unhappy with this idea. So there's a sense here that that is why they decided to move against him. And the salary and allegations of misuse of money provided a convenient and expedient way to do so, even if those allegations are indeed correct and Ghosn may well have broken the law. But that does seem to be the main reason. And the second reason seems to be there was a lot of outrage at his level of pay. Japan traditionally pays people according not to performance, but to seniority. That's changing and has changed at Nissan, in fact. But his salary was really so high that it's rumoured to have caused quite a lot of disgruntlement within Nissan. Yes, that's right. We ran a piece a couple of weeks ago. The pay ratios between Japan's CEOs and workers is much smaller than that in in the West, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, executives have paid very little in Japan compared to elsewhere. And, you know, you might say that they shouldn't be paid as much as they are elsewhere, but there definitely could be bigger pay to sort of promote them taking more risks and potentially making their companies perform better. So what next for Nissan and Mitsubishi Motors? Presumably we're not going to get a merger if this episode was connected with stopping a merger plan. 
That seems unlikely now, but the future of the alliance really uh, hangs in the balance. I mean, Ghosn is the man who put it together and by all reports actually held it together. He was the sticky tape of it all. Nissan have said in sort of internal remarks to employees that now is the time to look at this alliance and see where it should go and what it should look like, which may sort of cause worries, particularly in Renault and to the French state. So it's really unclear what will happen. I mean, obviously it's been very successful, so it would seem foolish to dismantle it. But uh, I think what Nissan would like to see is having more of an equal relationship with Renault, perhaps, than they currently have. Sarah Burke, The Economist Tokyo Bureau Chief, thank you very much. Thank you. Finally, to Ireland, which is famous for its pubs. There are some 7,000 Irish pubs worldwide, compared with about 8,500 on the island itself. But despite this, both Northern Ireland and the Republic make it quite difficult to open a drinking establishment, with the process being slow, pricey and fraught with uncertainty. Leo Morani, The Economist news editor, has selflessly devoted time to finding out about this issue. Leo, the big question really, before we start, is Guinness or Murphy's? Guinness, always Guinness. Guinness. Unless you're paying with the Bank of Ireland note, in which case you're almost obliged to get a Bushmills. (laughs) Well, that's fair enough. Now, what is so difficult about licensing laws in Ireland? So for a country whose chief cultural export is pubs, you'd think they would be pretty good at this whole opening a pub business. In fact, it's significantly harder than England and Wales. Scotland has its own laws. My travel budget, alas, did not extend that far, so I'm going to restrict myself to these regions. In England and Wales, you need to acquire a personal license and a premises license, and together that sets you back a few hundred pounds. In Ireland, you can't just go to your local council and ask for a license. You need to acquire one from somebody who already has one. You need to pay them on the open market for it. So that ramps up the cost to about, on average, about £50,000 in Northern Ireland and about €53,000 in the Republic. Then you need to make a court appointment for that to become your license. And if all goes smoothly, this can take two or three months. You've already paid the 50,000 quid. You've paid your lawyer. You've paid a broker. It very often does not go smoothly because there's a number of things you must establish before you can open a new premises, assuming you're not just taking over an existing pub along with its license. So one of the things you need to establish is need. What can happen sometimes is the existing pub owners might think that they are satisfying this need. And so they might find that perhaps the license you have acquired has some technical irregularities or something like that. And so they might lodge an objection, in which case, if it's going to be contested application, then it takes much, much longer. You're not going to get a court date for several months because those dates are hard to come by. You may not get it in the end. You need to reapply. Why is that? What's the history behind that? In a way, you could trace it back to the potato famine. In 1845, there were about 8.3 million people on the entire island, and they had about 15,000 pubs between them, a pretty decent number. But by 1891, only 4.7 million people remained. Yet the number of pubs had grown to 17,000. So the Royal Commission on Liquor Licensing, which was um, established in London, came to the conclusion that amongst those who remained, a great deal of drinking went on. And the report added... The number of pubs is beyond all question excessive, utterly out of proportion to the necessities of the inhabitants. So what they did, they established this principle, one in, one out. Do you think it's going to change anytime soon? Not a chance. Northern Ireland doesn't really have a government to begin with. Secondly, existing pub owners, much like ageing homeowners in Britain, see it as their nest egg. It's their retirement kitty. In the Republic of Ireland, not only 
is this not going to change? But they're introducing new laws to make selling alcohol uh, not harder, but you know, to impose new restrictions to clamp down on drinking. So there's no question of this changing, nor does anybody on the island seem to want it to change. Well, that's bad news for those of you who want a Guinness of a Friday night. But Leo, thank you very much. Thank you, Phil. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to pick up the latest issue of The Economist or find us online at economist.com. And if you enjoy our journalism, why not consider taking out a subscription to The Economist? Just go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Philip Coggan, and in London, this is The Economist. Step onto the legendary clay courts of Roland Garros, where the world's best players battle it out for a chance to win the French Open title. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV, live in HD. Don't miss a moment with daily live coverage and match replays on demand, beginning Monday, May 20th. Be there for all the unforgettable moments. Stream now with Tennis Channel Plus.